Hello and welcome to the Brentas Foundation podcast, where we throw light on some of the African continent's biggest and most pressing issues and leverage best practice, not just on what to do, but how to do it. I'm your host, Marie Noel Ngoklo, and it's a pleasure to share in this moment with you. If you're new here, welcome. It's nice to have you here. If you're a regular, hey, how's it going? So this is the podcast where I share a lot of the super interesting conversations I have with really cool people. I'm a firm believer and sharing ideas that shape and challenge the world as we know it. My hope is that these conversations where you get to be a fly on the wall start further and deeper conversations wherever you are and lead to the exploring of actions and ideas that actually work and make a difference. So without further ado, let's get straight into it. Again, I'm Marie Noel and you're listening to the Brentas Foundation podcast. Okay, okay. Today's episode is a really special one. I'll be speaking with one of the most cited South African economists globally and UCT's very own special somebody. With my guest, you'll hear about employment trends, structural shifts, and three broad labor market issues in South Africa, and how these challenges can be overcome through realistic policy changes. My guest is no other than Professor Harun Borat. Professor Borat co-authored the chapter Policy Choices for the Labour Market and co-edited the volume we now know as Better Choices. Among many, many, many things, um, Professor Borat is a Professor of Economics and Director of the Development Policy Research Unit at the University of Cape Town, UCT. He also currently serves on the Presidential Economic Advisory Council, established by President Cyril Ramaphosa to generate new ideas for economic growth, job creation, and addressing poverty in South Africa. Yes, I've done enough talking now. Listen up to this evidence-based and highly informative chat with Professor Borat, and ignore me falling over my words trying not to fangirl. Here's a chat with Professor Borat. Professor Borat, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to the Brentas Foundation podcast. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks, Marina Well, for inviting me. Yeah, no, pleasure is mine. I mean, I think to get us started, it would be good to hear in terms of when you were doing the research for this chapter, right, in the book Better Choices, can you provide a brief overview of some of the main things that stood out to you when we were thinking about, you know, the labor market in South Africa in terms of employment trends, um, evolution of wages and things like that? What are some of the main themes that stood out to you in this research? Well, I think there are two or three big themes. The first is um, that, you know, since, um, and, and the book has this graphic, and, and so readers and listeners should actually go and uh, go and look for this graphic, which is what I call the, um, the crocodile, the crocodile door, jaw uh, graphic, which is if you can imagine uh, a line graph from from 19 or make it 2000. So over the last two decades, a line graph of GDP per capita for uh, South Africa compared to other emerging markets. And you think of those two lines. And if you imagine the, the jaw of a crocodile being open, the bottom jaw is South Africa, which is the growth rate of GDP per capita in South Africa compared to the top jaw, um, top half, if you like, of the crocodile's mouth. Uh, which is emerging markets. Effectively, what's happened, South Africa's seen very, very poor and low growth rates relative to emerging market peers. Um, It's been, uh, in in my view, 
certainly two two lost decades, but principally the last decade in particular from 2009, um, where we've seen stagnation. And then the second key fact is on the back of that, you've got a pandemic that managed to take away close to two million jobs um, over a very, very short period, over a couple of quarters. Uh, just to be clear, looking forward, which we don't raise in the book, but that 90, we, we, we 95% back to where we were in terms of pre-pandemic job levels. But the third factor um, around employment is that the nature, uh, similar to what I said earlier about um, the types of employment you want, in general, you would, it's not that you only want jobs in manufacturing or jobs in the secondary sector, but they have to be there have to be an engine room for job creation um, in, in any economy to reduce poverty, to give jobs to large numbers of people. And we haven't seen that in South Africa. So if you compare those low growth rates, which are already a problem, you also have a problem of um, what I call employment patterns that are biased towards um, the tertiary sector. So between 2000 and 2020, about 5 million new jobs were created, but 89% of those were in the tertiary sector. The secondary sector, so we take, for example, manufacturing, it's only created 180,000 jobs over a 20-year period. Just think about that, 180,000 jobs over a 20-year period. That's completely insufficient to absorb large numbers of people into, um, into employment. Uh, and, it, and it needs to be a part of the story. One can't only rely on the tertiary sector. Then the third part of it is a large, too many jobs, at least for South Africa, in that tertiary sector uh, came from uh, the public sector. Um, and so too many jobs are being created in government so, or public the public sector relative to what uh, one should have in an emerging market of our size. Um, just a very final point is into this breach, you've got a South African economy, and that is our third sort of empirical point. Uh, in in the in the chapter, where uh, if you look at wages, you've got a U-shaped distribution in terms of wage growth. What that means, very simply, is wages over time have grown for those at the bottom. Just think of the U-shape: those at the bottom, and those at the top, and those in the middle. Hence, the U-shape have actually seen either decline or very little growth in their wages. So this missing middle is a so the middle class being being uh, or, or those in the middle of the distribution being squeezed is another common feature of the South African economy. Thanks for that overview. And I know one thing you mentioned when you're talking about sort of the I guess the kinds of jobs that have been created and where they've been created. Right? So this idea of an engine room for job making and also you know jobs in for instance manufacturing which you mentioned I think it's been like 180,000 over more than a decade is like is it that was that a miscalculation in policy or is that not enough effort put towards creating jobs across the board? Yeah so I think it's um there are a variety of reasons. I mean, it's a good question. There are a variety of reasons for that. Um, let's call it flatlining of manufacturing output and employment. I mean, you know, to be fair, one of the key reasons is the rise of China, the sort of um, aggressive global com competitiveness of China's manufacturing industry sucked yeah. up manufacturing capacity in the rest of the world from the rest of the world. Um, 
the the you know and i always tell my students for example that salt over down the road uh, from where i am currently used to be south africa's hub for clothing production right so the, that those streets of salt River were all lined with clothing manufacturers now that's gone it's all gone and it's all, all went to china and now gone to vietnam and bangladesh so so we lost a lot of output and and employment to um to lower cost uh, producers elsewhere in the world the other reason is technology so technology took away a, a lot of the employment requirements in manufacturing so that reduced it but i think one of the key reasons is that we just didn't maintain competitiveness in terms of cost structures in terms of skills and that's where a lot of the chapter goes to which is what are the kinds of labor market fixes that's required in order to increase formal sector employment there was a part in your chapter where you said that, you know, it's become evident that the formal sector alone is not capable of generating the job growth that's required um, to sort of absorb the growing number of people um, in South Africa. And I was just trying to tease out a bit more because I think it might link to the point on informal sector or the aha moment on informal sectors. I wanted to yes. hear your thoughts on that. Yes. Yeah, so, so that again, so, so you're right that um, the points I've been making about manufacturing are the, about the structure of growth. So in other mm. words, um, we need to find a way to make manufacturing more competitive and then put us onto a higher higher growth plane, so higher levels of growth. However, uh, and this was the aha moment, if you, you know, it's almost, it always almost become banal to note that we have one of the highest unemployment rates in the world, right? I mean, it's just, yeah. you know, we continuously talk about that, but we never couple that with the other statement, which is, and that's the aha moment I had, which is actually, if you take a similar sample of countries and you looked at our levels of informality, we actually have one of the lowest levels of informality, right? For the same sam sample of countries. So if you can mm -hmm. imagine, what that would suggest that these other countries struggle with the same challenges as us, right? The inability to get manufacturing going, maybe a bloated public sector and so on. So they're not particularly so much better at converting growth into employment. But what they do do is then allow the labor market, as we say, to be closed at a lower unemployment rate through higher levels of informality. So what that means in simple terms is the simple terms is that these economies have much larger numbers of people in the informal sector, right, as a share of the labor force. Mm -hmm. And we don't. And and we we why we don't is again another issue to discuss and why we have a small informal sector. But that means that we in the strange kind of policy universe where we need to be recommending and suggesting uh, a, a growth in the number of individuals in the informal sector. You said you were in Accra talking out of that city at the moment. I don't need to tell you that Accra has teams of people selling you everything and anything in the streets of Accra, right? That's what a developing country city looks like. Yet what we have in South Africa are very limited, almost like a bespoken approach to the informal sector. You can only operate here and not there. And these are the numbers that are required and so on. And what that's done over time in the last two decades is prevented the informal sector from flourishing. And my argument is that's what's going to move the dial in one immediate sense in terms of <laughs> unemployment is to allow uh, the vulnerable easy access to the informal sector.
Yeah. And what I mean, your point on Accra is spot on. Just yesterday, I can tell you, I passed by somebody selling dog chains, somebody selling flowers, mm. somebody mm. selling sugar cane. It's a whole range of things. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, it's spot on. But what are some of those sort of fixes or ways to at least address the informal sector in South Africa? Yeah, so I mean, you know, we 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 pick up on a few of these in the um in the chapter, but we refer to the broad ambit of this as supply side economics of a good type. So in other words, what needs to happen is government firstly needs to think of the informal sector as firms, right? As enterprises. So whether it's a one person uh, individual selling, you know, um food on the side of the road. Uh, or it's maybe two or three people in a small manufacturing operation making furniture, right? Um, they're part of of a, a potentially employment absorbing part of the economy. It may not be highly productive jobs, but it but it will be jobs. It will be economic activity. They can't mm-hmm. the 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 fiscus cannot be relied on to provide income to these individuals permanently. So you have to find ways in which for the economy to do this work. So from that, then the question is, what are these supply side initiatives? What are the what are the sort of interventions that the state can can think about? Yeah, those would include uh, we uh, hence the notion supply side initiatives, things around regulation. Mm -hmm. So regulation in terms of literally deregulating uh, operation of the informal sector. So municipal bylaws at the moment don't allow the informal sector to operate in many jurisdictions remove those, right? They're a relic of apartheid town planning, right? Where we assumed we were in in Paris instead of Paris, right? I mean, uh, there are all sorts of ways in which you can think of these regulations uh, um, not uh, allowing for the informal sector to operate. The second is around infrastructure. So most of those who want to operate in the informal sector are not given things mundane but really important yeah. things for us they seem silly like storage facilities or ablution facilities or um uh, e- even crime prevention should be seen as infrastructure um, that allows and makes it easier for these individuals to operate and then the third is what i call incentives or avoid disincentives and the big one i keep on i've mentioned it many many times before is hawker's licenses so currently you have you have to register the equivalent of uh, almost the equivalent of a child support grant payment to register your business. Well, remove it, zero rated. It's not even a big uh, fee um, component for municipalities. So those are three very simple examples of how you can almost free up the informal mm-hmm. sector to operate freely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. One of the things you also spoke about in this chapter was this sort of structural um, imbalance between the labor uh, labor demand and supply. And I think it was largely focused on like skills and training. Could you speak a little bit about what that landscape has been like in South Africa um, and also in that space, what is required if you're looking at practical sort of uh, things that need to be done, could be done? Yeah. So, I mean, there's the, you know, the skills mismatch is a key has always been a key feature of South Africa's, um, uh, let's say, constraint on growth and also um, uh, constraint on generating uh, larger employment, higher levels of employment through growth. It's what we called, um, you know, the, the skills mismatch that defines 
the nature of the constraint. Now, in many ways, uh, that's a little bit about the unemployed, the, those who don't have jobs, are, are generally uh, individuals with incomplete secondary education or a grade 12 schooling. Uh, and, and the demand for jobs is at a level and at a technical uh, um, at a technical requirement much above that, right? So, mm. uh, you know, you may have incomplete secondary schooling, but really, you know, the employer needs, for example, somebody with five years of training as an actuary or as a bookkeeper or as a boilermaker, and those skills don't exist. And the more sophisticated the skills requirement of the employer, so they may require, say, somebody with 15 years of experience in solar power, right? Um, and and those skills are hard to find. And in 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 a macro sense, um, there's a shortage of them. So what we propose very clearly is for an easing and a increased efficiency of uh, the scarce skills and uh, um, general work visa systems that at least allow employers to more optimally and quickly source those skills. Mm -hmm. And for a policy approach, particularly the Department of Home Affairs, to not view the private sector as trying to avoid hiring local people. There's too much of an adversarial approach to the private sector and to firms. And I think that's still, that's a generic problem with government. Uh, it's slowly changing, but I think um, particularly in skills, you see that operating um, uh, in, in, in quite a fractious manner with employers. Yeah, no, that's definitely one of the things we see or hear about and can even speak to, especially, you know, the issue of importing skills where it's necessary. The, the purpose of words, I'm just wondering, that's something that, right, it's not the first time you've said that, and others have said it as well in other ways. What do you think it, it would require to allow something like this to appear as more of a practical solution because I think there's okay this is what it's required to do but I imagine the reason why it's not being there's a reason why it's not being done do you have any ideas on why there's still a struggle around you know skills whether it's upskilling people whether it's importing new skills like where do you think that block is I'm curious to hear your thoughts yeah so I mean I think I think there's a so that just to step back there is a general um, uh, approach problem, which is to view uh, the private sector in a suspicious manner and so on, right? Um, but there's also just, if you take the critical skills visa and the general work visa, which are separate but linked visa uh, programs, right, to try and bring in uh, ideally skilled workers, right? Um, each one of those have between 13 and 15 requirements. Uh, of the employer. That's a large number, right? So that that alone gives you a sense in which um, uh, uh, the application process can be incredibly, uh, let's say, detailed in terms of requirements. There's compilation of documents. You need certificates from SACWA. You need certificates from the Department of Labor, uh, certificates from the DTI. Um, all of that makes for a very, very complex process. 
that can run for the general work visa between six and eight months and for the critical skills visa between four and six months. And then you're not even clear at the end of it whether whether you are going to uh, be successful or not. The, none of this is, I should add, um, operating optimally in terms of being a fully online on a fully online system so there's one obvious solution it's like you don't even have to change any of the requirements just put everything online right and that hasn't happened it's a bit like saying you know you're queuing up for your for your um passport as you may recall or your id and we know that many of those uh processes and steps are automatable right you can put them online and it'll increase efficiency and in fact home affairs has done that for some of those processes so it's a little bit like improving efficiency rather than even changing any of the systems right there are other ways in which beyond system challenges right where you can try and fix the entire um, uh, approach right so you can look for example at quota systems so you could say to companies, uh, we don't care who you bring in, right? Uh, but you can only bring in X percentage of your workforce as skilled workers. Obviously, the quota has conditions. So, you know, you have to be paying and prove that you're paying the individual above a certain threshold, a million rand a year, whatever the case may be. That then ensures that it's always going to be a skilled individual. So there, so there are other ways in which you can think of a different system. But I'd say simply put, instead of going through that big policy discussion and another white paper to change that, well, why not just put the entire system online for starters, right? And hold government accountable to a much more efficient um, resolution for the same uh, for the same rules. No, thank you for that. So I know getting ready to sort of wrap this conversation up, but I wanted to hear a little bit about your points on direct employment creation and some of the initiatives to try to incentivize the private sector, for instance, to create more jobs. Like what yeah. are what are South Africa's options in 2022 as we're speaking? Yeah, so I mean, just to turn a little bit back to um, to the uh, the specifics of the chapter, Marina. Well, I mean, one of the things we did do was to talk about the role of uh, labour market institutions and labour market regulation in terms of formal employment. So we make two or three big recommendations. One is around improving the efficiency of the dispute resolution process. So we argue that too much inefficiency exists either in a pure administrative sense in the labor courts or in terms of, uh, if you like, uh, zero barriers to entry uh, to the CCMA. So those dispute resolution systems can be made far more efficient and therefore from the employer and employee's perspective, uh, 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 well, maybe the employer's perspective and investors make it reduce the cost of hiring and the cost of firing. That's just pure efficiency changes, not nothing to do with regulation. In terms of labor regulation, we do make the suggestion that we have a, a part of the Labor Relations Act that's antithetical to small businesses. So the idea that you've got extensions to the non-parties to an agreement, a collective bargaining agreement, uh, effectively means that SMMEs have to line up behind much larger enterprises in terms of adhering to collective bargaining agreements. If you remove that, clause, that extensions and non-parties clause, you immediately free up the small business sector uh, in terms of onerous regulations. Um, with that in mind, we then say 
uh, and I'll stop there, that there's a whole series of measures that government should be considering around incentivizing employment creation. We talk about the wage subsidy scheme and that how can that can be expanded as well as deepened. Continuing with, there definitely still is a role for the um, uh, public works program within government and one should continue with that within fiscal limits. Um, but essentially, the idea would be to look to firms right and various mechanisms to incentivize firms to hire more workers and 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 it's almost a switch from uh from poverty reduction which i think we do really really well through our social assistance scheme so keep that in place towards more uh, a focus away from households towards firms and incentivizing firms to generate employment Thank you so much for taking us through these. Um, I think just to wrap up, I would ask, because I know there are lots of things that could be done, but could you just highlight for us the top three things that you highlight in the chapter in terms of these practical recommendations or these better choices um, that South Africa could make today that will begin to change uh, the labor market for good? Sure. So if I, it's almost I've given you the detailed version and the summary version, the cheat sheet, so to speak, is yes. firstly uh, think about regulatory constraints to employment generation or even for uh, firm growth. So that would be everything from, as I've said, improving dispute resolution, um, removing the extension to non-parties clauses, right through to um, encouraging and removing uh, the regulatory constraints on the operation of small businesses, right? Like hawkers licenses and zoning regulations. But the second set is on the supply side. So you do a supply of labor side, right? So here you want to tweak, we didn't speak much about it, but tweak the CETA system and revisit all the, regular, uh, the, the limits to foreign skilled workers coming into the country. And then the final one is to keep going with active, what we call active labor market policies. So that's the wage subsidy to firms, uh, continue uh, the focus on uh, public works programs, as well as thinking more creatively about additional um, incentives to firms. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing that. Now, before you go, I have two last questions. The first one is, what is your message as you sort of work in the space of producing research but also policy advisory what is your message to young people coming up in this space that are looking to make an impact when it comes to policy advisory in terms of what kinds of policies to be investigating how to think about policy in the African context, even that I know it's quite different. And let me just pretend right now we can use the South African point of view. But what is the message that you would have for young people coming up in this space? So my message is almost uh, that, you know, young people um, will, by looking at the world around them, see policy challenges in the most simplest and obvious ways, right? Whether it's the fact, as I've said, that um, an informal sector worker struggles to get his or her goods to market. They can't move it from where they live to a, a city uh, where consumers are. That's a policy challenge. And then to, you and to work backwards from that policy challenge to see how can you describe that problem in accurate terms to a policymaker and then through the process of research actually deliver innovative policy solutions because policymakers will listen but you need to be very specific 
in your description of the problem. And I always believe use numbers where you can and, and, and provide very clear, innovative, uh, unique solutions that are specific to the problem uh, for policymakers to listen to. That's fantastic. Very practical. Thank you. And the last question I have is, what was the most surprising thing about putting together this volume? Um, the most surprising thing actually was, uh, to be fair, you know, all of us are academics and academically inclined researchers, but how well all the authors as a co-editor adhere to the guidelines for the chapter. So they really did put their heart and soul into figuring out what the exact choices and the better choices yeah. should be for each of the areas. So I must say I was, I was very, very happy and uh, a little bit surprised because we yeah. all find it difficult to, to to outline specific policy suggestions. We like to analyze the world. Um, yeah. As a, as a famous philosopher said, the point is to change it, right? Uh, and, and that's sometimes harder. So, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, Professor Bora, thank you so much for making the time to have this conversation with me. I really appreciate it. Great. My pleasure, Marie Noel. My pleasure. That brings us to the end of today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did putting it together. I love, love learning new things. Hey, if you enjoyed this chat, you definitely enjoy others that came before it. Check out previous episodes on whichever platform you're tuned into now or visit our website www.thebrentersfoundation.org for other episodes. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if I could make one last ask of you, please do share this with others. Again, you're listening to Marie Noel on the Brentas Foundation podcast and it's been a pleasure sharing this time with you. Until next week, stay well.